Hi, everyone. I'm Alistair Stevens. Welcome to session 22 of There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. This week, Tom Bombadil. Just probably a lot of Tom Bombadil and some Barrow Whites and some Goldberry and an interesting perspective on Frodo and what it is that makes young Frodo Baggins so special. We're going to have a lot to discuss as we move forward today. You can join me here live in the YouTube chat. You can, of course, also contribute to the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag TABAGAIN, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N. Or, ordinarily, you can take part in the Patreon-exclusive Discord chat room. Unfortunately, Discord won't allow me to log in right now, so I can't see anything that's happening in the Discord chat room. I hope you guys are all having a good time without me. I'll probably catch up with any comments that you make there after the live session is over. This is one of those sessions that I have been looking forward to since we started there and back again, because Tom Bombadil is such a famously divisive figure. Many readers of The Lord of the Rings, I think it's fair to say, consider Tom Bombadil to be an unnecessary indulgence. Consider him to be in some way a challenge to what is otherwise a ruthlessly consistent frame for The Lord of the Rings. As I mentioned in the short uh, listener Q&A episode that I released last night, there is almost nothing contained within the pages of The Lord of the Rings that isn't accounted for in a deep and careful fashion. Tolkien motivates everything in terms of history, in terms of character, in terms of conflict. There is almost nothing that occurs within the span of this story that isn't drawn from thousands of years of fictional history, except Tom Bombadil. And that can be a challenge to readers who love the breadth and simultaneous depth of The Lord of the Rings, the breadth and depth of Tolkien's creation in general. Tom Bombadil can be silly, can appear to be inessential. He certainly alienates readers of The Lord of the Rings in a similar fashion, though I think perhaps not to the same degree as the elves alienate readers in the pages of The Hobbit. And there certainly are some similarities between Tom's incessant singing, particularly his singing of nonsense syllables, and the Tra-la-la-lolly song that we discussed way back when as we moved through The Hobbit. Tolkien wrote in a letter in 1954, Many have found him, referring to Tom Bombadil, an odd and indeed discordant ingredient. In historical fact, I put him in because I had already invented him, more on that in a moment, and wanted an adventure on the way, but I kept him in and I kept him in as he was because he represents certain things otherwise left out. Tolkien invented Tom Bombadil much earlier in his career. He invented them in the memory of his children's beloved doll, who was also known uh, by a variation of the name Bombadil. Then he wrote poems. In 1934, he wrote The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, which depicts Tom Bombadil as a merry fellow living in a small valley close to the Withywindle River, where he wanders and explores and sings and dances at his leisure. And contained within that poem, we find other characters who are relevant to this part of the story, including Goldberry, the river woman's daughter, as she's known in that poem, and the malevolent tree spirit old man Willow. We also get Barrow Whites in that story. So it seems as though this entire section of Frodo's adventure has been transplanted from earlier work that Tolkien created. And that's not unusual. The process of crafting his legendarium required Tolkien to draw from earlier stories that he had told, earlier stories that he believed to be disconnected and then realized in their, in their blossoming and in their fruition that they were, in fact, all tied together. So there's nothing inherently suspect about this process of transplantation, except that Tom is not integrated into Middle-earth the way that almost every other element is. 
We've discussed before Tolkien's approach to revision, his careful and painstaking approach to revision, where he can carefully integrate any number of features into the unfolding story simply by tweaking a line here, an adjective here. He can bring these elements together and make them beautifully harmonious, in addition to his skill as a poet and as a painter and as a crafter, of course, of stories. Tolkien was perhaps one of the 20th century's preeminent revisionists. His skill when it came to revision and integration is peerless, functionally peerless. So his choice not to integrate Tom Bombadil is a bold one. What I'd like to do is to move through the end of chapter five into chapter six, and then ultimately into chapter seven. That's what we're going to cover in this session. But I don't necessarily want to anticipate the movement of the story. I don't want to talk about who Tom Bombadil is until we have amassed all of the necessary evidence to the degree that we get all the necessary evidence contained within the pages. Instead, I want to look at the text, try and parse the text, and then perhaps offer some minor speculation when the time is right. And I see here uh, an absolute defense of Tom Bombadil here in the YouTube chat. I will say that certainly when I initially read The Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil was not my favorite character, was not my favorite part. I was disinterested in the events in the Old Forest and even the events in the Barrow Downs because it does require a different kind of, of understanding of Tolkien's world. But certainly... Returning to the story again and again, as I have, I have found my fondness for Tom Bombadil growing with each subsequent reading, and also my fondness for Goldberry, who doesn't get the same attention that Tom gets, but is every bit, I think, as fascinating and elusive and ambiguous a figure. So we'll definitely talk about Goldberry, too, as we begin. We do, I know I say this every week, but you guys, we have so much to cover this week. So we may well run long this week, but... Uh, We'll do what we can. Jackie says, I almost stopped reading the book at home when I was a kid, but my dad made me keep going. The two parts of the Fellowship of the Ring that drive readers out are Tom Bombadil and the Council of Aurond. That is almost universally true. If you can make it through both of those chapters, then you are good to go. I think by that point, you have cleared the hurdle and you are in for the rest of the Lord of the Rings. I'm trying to think, and I'm not sure that there is another section of the book that drives people out in the same way. Even the somewhat controversial structure of the two towers, generally readers by that point are so invested that they will proceed nonetheless. But yes, Tom Bombadil is, if you could chart the readership of the Lord of the Rings, there would be a steep decline when we hit Tom Bombadil and then a steep decline when we hit the Council of Elrond. Those are the two most difficult hurdles to overcome. And let me tell you, I'm hoping that by the end of the session, you will like Tom Bombadil more than you already do. And I'm certainly hoping that by the time we clear the Council of Elrond, which we will actually discuss a little superficially today. By the time we clear the Council of Elrond, I hope that you will enjoy that chapter a great deal more too. But yeah, these, these are hurdles. As Elizabeth says here in the YouTube chat, Tom was my favorite part in the first read, but the Council of Elrond had me taking a hard out. I can understand that. It is impenetrable, though Becca here offers the contrary position. The Council is amazing. One of my favorite parts. We are going to get there in four weeks, something like that. So uh, we'll definitely have five weeks, perhaps. So we'll definitely have a lot to talk about when we get to the Council of Elrond. All right, let's get into it. And we're beginning um, here in our discussion of chapter, uh, in our discussion of... Um, as I'm trying to rearrange my screens here to make sure that everything works, in our discussion of chapter 7 and 8, which is the, the primary focus of this week's session, we are, of course, going to begin with the end of chapter 6, with the rescue of the hobbits from Old Man Willow, and our first hearing, our, our, our first discovery, our first introduction to Tom Bombadil. Suddenly, he stopped, 
There was an answer, or so he thought, but it seemed to come from behind him, away down the path further back in the forest. He turned round and listened, and soon there could be no doubt. Someone was singing a song. A deep, glad voice was singing carelessly and happily, but it was singing nonsense. Hey, doll, merry doll, ring-a-dong, dillo, ring-a-dong, hop-along, fa-la the willow, tom-bom, jolly-dom, tom-bom-badillo. Half hopeful and half afraid of some new danger, Frodo and Sam now both stood still. Suddenly, out of a long string of nonsense words, or so they seemed, the voice rose up loud and clear and burst into this song. Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling, light, light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling, down along the, excuse me, down along underhill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water, old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again, can you hear him singing? Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, and merry o, gold berry, gold berry, merry yellow berry o, poor old willow man, you tuck your roots away, Tom's in a hurry now, evening will follow day. Tom's going home again. Water lilies bringing. Hey, come, dairy doll. Can you hear me singing? And that's when people close the book. That's it. That's that's it right there. Hey, this is Tralala Lolly version two. I'm good, thanks. I'm I'm fine for you know nonsense syllables right now. And certainly there is a specific echo here of the Tralala Lolly because we get not just the nonsense syllables, of course, but we get some of the same observations. As the elves did when Bilbo overheard their song, so Tom is singing of the world around him. He's singing of what he is experiencing. This is not a purposeful song. This is not a song that is being turned to some metaphorical or symbolic purpose. He's not even engaging in imagery very much. Rather, he is simply reporting the details. Down along Underhill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. I mean, okay, so we get some similes there, that's fine. But generally, he's just singing about what is happening. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? To whom is Tom addressing this song? Because, as we will learn later, he doesn't know about the hobbits right now. He certainly addresses poor old Willow Man, but he doesn't know that, that old man Willow is currently engaged in the nefarious consumption of hobbits. He doesn't know that this is happening. This seems to be part of his internal monologue, part of his function in the world, just as the elves were singing about the river flowing. Here, Tom is reporting his experience in song. And we discussed last time on There and Back Again the degree to which song and prose represent different ways of, of engaging with the world and interpreting the world. The elves sing freely and create poetry freely, and poetry and song here, pretty much interchangeable. These two things are imaginative ways of engaging with the world. They are non-literal, but in some sense more true. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the prosy hobbits. Hobbits don't generally write poems, and when they do, other hobbits are inclined to be suspicious of them. Certainly, Bilbo's creation of poetry, as we know from The Long Expected Party, Bilbo's propensity for poetry it does not make him popular in hobbit culture. We don't want to sit and listen to long poems. Instead, we want to eat. We want to be engaged in the prosy activities of comfort and community. There's little or no poetry in the hearts of hobbits. But this is a spectrum. Certainly, we've seen dwarves engage with song, not in the same way that elves do, but 
toward that end of the spectrum, at least. Dwarves can wield song to greater purpose than prose. Remember all the way back at the beginning of The Hobbit when Bilbo asks, okay, so what's the deal? What's the plan? And Thorin replies, didn't you hear our song? We just told you everything that's going to happen. But Bilbo is literally incapable of parsing song the way that he parses prose. And ultimately, I guess, the driest form of prose is the contract that they then draw up. Tom Bombadil exists, I think, at the furthest end of that spectrum because Tom is 100% song. And this, I think, is crucial to understanding his prose as we move forward through his chapters. Even when he is talking, he is singing. We can readily identify the same rhythms and the same structures, the same cadence within his reported dialogue that we can in the songs which are offset in italics in the usual style. Tom is constantly singing. He says basically nothing within his appearance in the book that can be considered anything other than poetry, anything other than this extemporaneous freeform verse, I suppose. I mean, a lot of it's kind of like slam poetry, like a lot of it doesn't rhyme, a lot of it, the scansion is a little dubious, but it's there nonetheless. And it is even punctuated from time to time by action. We get this ridiculous, you know, reporting of him leaping high in the air before he says something, or he'll, he'll spin around and then he'll say something. And those, those actions are not insignificant. They are oftentimes part of the poetic meter. The jump will occupy a beat, and then when he picks up, he'll be one beat short. And that is emblematic, I think, of Tom's approach to the world, of Tom's even arguably purpose in the world. He is there in part to sing. So understanding Tom's songs and understanding Tom's prose, particularly the nonsense syllable stuff, which I know makes some people absolutely crazy because Tolkien is such a careful poet and we rarely miss a syllable. These nonsense syllables in Tom's songs fulfill exactly the same function as the nonsense syllables in the Elf songs. They conform to the meter and the rhyme scheme of the song itself, yes, but they don't just do that. Tolkien was more than adequate a poet, uh, more than adequate enough a poet to take out those nonsense syllables and actually replace them with content, actually replace them with something meaningful, something profound even. They're there because they represent something resembling joy. They represent something resembling the, the immediate outpouring of exultation. Tom is enchanted by the world in the same way that the elves were back in The Hobbit, arguably even more so. Now, I can contrast that and we did contrast this just a few chapters ago with the first appearance of the elves in The Lord of the Rings when we get the Elbereth, Elbereth Gilthoniel song, which is quite the opposite. This is the other kind of elven poetry that we get, which is very carefully constructed and very carefully metrical. You know, this is, this is a polished piece of work, but it isn't spontaneous and it isn't joyous in quite the same way. It is more artistic and more profound, but these are the songs of life itself, which we know because we're tying back constantly to these observable phenomena in the world around us. Tom is simply singing his experience, and it's almost as though the experience is being reflected prismatically through him. He draws in the world, transforms it into song, and then lets it go again. And that's, I mean, not a bad way to live, right? Though, again, I do understand that it is provocative as we move into his first appearance here. Um, oh, this is interesting. Karen says, although Tom is a profoundly un-Anglo-Saxon character, hmm, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that, Karen, but 
uh, let's take that as 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 a given first. Let, let's uh, let's allow that to stand. Uh, she continues. His use of verse rhythms in prose is very like old English rhythmic prose in concept. Yes, absolutely. That I think is completely true. I think that the the transformation of hmm, the transformation of experience into poetry using this very formulaic, this very rhythmic, this very uh, this this very transparent kind of poetical structure is absolutely consistent with with kind of bardic tradition you know the the aim of bards in in old anglo-saxon and norse traditions was not necessarily to compose great songs it was to tell great stories and the rhythm and the rhyme of those stories was there to assist in in recall was there to to make the poem itself more memorable so that you could recall all of these many many stanzas of whatever epic poem you were relating they weren't necessarily primarily at least artistic forms. And that seems to be somehow compatible with Tom's songs, too. He isn't creating great art. Presumably, he doesn't write these poems down so that they can be shared by others. Rather, they are extemporaneous and, and joyous, as I said earlier. Yeah. Jackie says, Tom's always dancing around like, just sit still, man. This makes a lot of sense, you guys. Um, I completely understand why Peter Jackson didn't include Tom Bombadil in the movie adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, because you couldn't. You just couldn't. And that's forgetting or, or setting aside for the moment the tone that Peter Jackson chose to adopt for his, his adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. He, to he chose a more, a more somber and epic tone for the entire story, which is appropriate, I think, to, to those narrative elements which he chose to emphasize. But even if he had taken a lighter tone, even if he had taken a more whimsical tone, even if he had taken a more fairy tale tone, Tom Bombadil would still be ruthlessly incompatible with a, a movie. It would have been impossible to depict this little guy jumping around, hopping, his beard flapping in the breeze as he sings nonsense syllables. And just if you didn't know, my jacket's super blue, you guys, and my boots, let me tell you, pretty yellow. I'm Tom Bombadil. It's pretty great. It makes a lot of sense to me that he was cut and he was cut because, yes, when we try to physically imagine this guy, he does stretch, I think, our credulity. He stretches our imaginative capacity. And that is perhaps one of the most interesting things about Tom Bombadil because Tolkien was all about creating a, a consistent framework for the investment of belief. This is one of the primary virtues of stories as far as Tolkien is concerned. And to, to consciously and deliberately maintain a presence in the story that is a challenge to that investment of belief suggests that Tom Bombadil was very, very important to Tolkien. We'll discuss why a little bit as we as we get closer to our conclusion here. Yes. Becca says, in my head, Goldberry takes little notes about songs she likes and keeps them in a book somewhere. I like that idea. I like the idea that there's just a shelf with, you know, the wit and wisdom of Tom Bombadil. Oh, he made this really good rhyme. He probably did it by accident. But okay, wait, let me just write this down. Jacket is blue, right? Check. Boots, yellow. Okay, got it. All right, that's fine. Okay, let's, uh, let's push on that because we have to get to the rescue because we're still not even in chapter seven. Let me share this slide with you all. Frodo and Sam stood as if enchanted. The wind puffed out. The leaves hung silently again on stiff branches. There was another burst of song, and then suddenly hopping and dancing along the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat with a tall crown and a long blue feather stuck in the band. With another hop and a bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. 
At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people, though he made, he made noise enough for one, stamping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through grass and rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands he carried a large leaf, as on a, as on a tray a small pile, excuse me, in his hands he carried on a large leaf, as on a tray, a small pile of white water lilies. Help! cried Frodo and Sam, running toward him with their hands stretched out. Whoa, whoa, steady there! cried the old man, holding up one hand, and they stopped short as if they had been struck stiff. Now, my little fellows, where be you a going to, puffing like a bellows? What's the matter here, then? Do you know who I am? I'm Tom Bombadil. Tell me what's your trouble. Tom's in a hurry now. Don't you crush my lilies. My friends are caught in the willow tree, cried Frodo breathlessly. Master Mary's being squeezed in a crack, cried Sam. What? shouted Tom Bombadil, leaping up in the air. Old man Willow? Not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him, old grey Willow man. I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away, old man Willow. Here, immediately, we see the rhythm of Tom's song, the rhythm of Tom's poetry, the rhythm of Tom embedded in his prose too. It isn't perfect, and the absence of rhyme can certainly make it a little difficult to unpack, but it is there nonetheless, strong and clear and vibrant. So let's take a look at this description. Taller than a hobbit, but shorter than one of the big people. But unlike a hobbit, and of course, unlike elves, he charges through the forest. There's no sense that he is moving seamlessly. And interestingly, curiously, there's no sense in which he is coexistent with his environment in quite the same way that an elf would be or even a hobbit would be. One of the reasons that elves and hobbits move silently is simply that they are closer to the earth than the big people are. The alienation of man from nature means that they coexist uncomfortably, certainly coexist clumsily. And Tom seems to be in that order of being, which is odd, because there are many things in our description of Tom that suggest that he isn't just that he isn't just comfortable with his environment, but that he is in some sense synonymous with his environment. So I want to take careful note of this, that he isn't moving silently, that he isn't harmonious with his environment. He exists almost in a kind of, of joyous, riotous conflict with his environment. It's not a conflict rooted in malice, but it's a conflict rooted in excitement, in exultation, in song, almost. So Frodo and Sam ask for his help, and he immediately leaps into action. Old man Willow, not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him. We're immediately calling back to the seductive song of Old Man Willow, which was, if you remember from our last discussion, was lures the hobbits down into the valley and ultimately sings them to sleep. We know that the willow is singing, though it's singing using words that Frodo doesn't quite understand. It is singing in images and in, in experiences that are sweetly seductive and lulling. They are, they are soporific. But here, Tom knows a stronger song. Tom knows the tune that he can sing. I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away. Except Tom doesn't do that. Crucially, Tom doesn't do that. And it's unclear whether this is an idle threat, or this is Tom simply giving in to the drama of the moment, or this is ultimately the path that Tom would take if Old Man Willow resisted him. It's certainly possible. 
Let's uh, keep going because, as I say, we have so many to cover and we get the rescue. Of course, Tom actually manages to rescue the hobbits. And then at the end of the chapter, he leads them off to his home. They all hurried forward, hobbits and ponies. Already half their weariness and all their fears had fallen from them. Hey, come, merry doll, rolled out the song to greet them. Hey, come, dairy doll, hop along, my hearties. Hobbits, ponies all, we are fond of parties. Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. Then another clear voice, as young and as ancient as spring, like the song of a glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills, came falling like silver to meet them. Now let the song begin, let us sing together, of sun, stars, moon, and mist, rain, and cloudy weather, light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind on the open hill, bells on the heather, reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water, old Tom Bombadil, and the river daughter. And with that song, the hobbits stood, uh, stood upon the threshold, and a golden light was all about them. As Tom is riotous and ill-disciplined and frantic, so Goldberry is composed and elegant and, in a sense, pure. There are pure and pure-adjacent words scattered throughout the descriptions that we get of Goldberry, but their immediate juxtaposition could not be more compelling. Hobbits, ponies all, we are fond of parties. Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. This is very Tom Bombadil. This is exuberant. This is, I mean, okay, even those of us who like Tom Bombadil would not like to be seated next to him on a plane. I mean, that would be pretty unpleasant. Or even to be standing next to him in the checkout line at CVS, you know, that would not be a good experience. I imagine Tom Bombadil will get wearisome pretty quick. But Goldberry, well, she is something else entirely. Now let the song begin. Let us sing together. Of sun, stars, moon, and mist, rain and cloudy weather, light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind on the open hill, bells on the heather, reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water, old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter. Let's try and parse this poem just a little bit. Because what is the song trying to communicate? What is this song trying to do, in effect? Now let the song begin. Okay, here we go. You're here. It's time. Let's sing. Let's do this thing. But crucially, let us sing together. I am not going to sing at you. This is choral. This is going to be harmonious. We will raise our voices together. And this is crucial as we move into the beginning of the next chapter and we see Frodo's extemporaneous attempt at some poetry. Let us sing together of sun and stars, moon and mist, rain and cloudy weather. What are we singing of? Well, we're singing of the entirety of the natural world. As Tom is reporting his direct experience, here I am gathering water lilies. Hey, old man Willow, check out my boots. They're super yellow. That is Tom's experience. But Goldberry is doing something very different. Here she's encapsulating everything. Those things that she can see and directly experience and those things which she cannot, but those things which are still an integral part of her. But crucially, still, still natural. We get no construction here. Sun, stars, moon, mist, rain, cloudy weather, light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather. There's nothing here that is constructed. There's nothing here that is, uh, you know, a created thing. This is still very much the natural world. Oh, that's interesting. Um, are we talking? We're talking in the YouTube chat here. Yes, Becca asks, what exactly is Goldberry? And Jackie says, so I always thought Goldberry was an elf, young and ancient as spring, but is she literally the river daughter? What's a river daughter? Well... I have a theory. I have a stronger theory, honestly, about Tom, simply because we get more information about Tom than I do about Goldberry. But I also have a theory about Goldberry. We'll get to that as we uh, as we move forward here into chapter seven. In fact, let us meet Goldberry in uh, this slide. One of my favorite uh, one of my favorite passages in this chapter. 
In a chair at the far side of the room facing the outer door sat a woman. Her long yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag lilies set with the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. Enter, good guests, she said, and as she spoke, they knew it was, excuse me, they knew that it was her clear voice they had heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking on a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, had been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. But before they could say anything, she sprang lightly up and over the lily bowls and ran laughing toward them, and as she ran, her gown rustled softly like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. Come, dear folk, she said, taking Frodo by the hand. Laugh and be merry. I am Goldberry, daughter of the river. Then lightly she passed them, and closing the door, she turned her back to it, with her white arms spread out across it. Let us shut out the night, she said, for you are still afraid, perhaps, of mist and tree shadows and deep water and untamed things. Fear nothing, for tonight you are under the roof of Tom Bombadil. The hobbits looked at her in wonder, and she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to the mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. Fair Lady Goldberry, he said again, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. This is beautiful. This is just so rich and seductive and yes i am already enchanted by uh by goldberry as i'm sure you all are too it is interesting that generally speaking the criticism of tom bombadil does not fall upon the shoulders of goldberry equally you know generally speaking i think people are much more fond of her than they are of him even those people who who dislike him um what is goldberry then well goldberry is something that breaks the narrative frame i mentioned earlier that these nonsense syllables in the songs of Tom Bombadil and in the songs of the elves in The Hobbit are not unintentional. They are not spackle that Tolkien has slapped across the cracks in his poetic ability. They are entirely purposeful. He is a better poet than that. And Tolkien is also a very good writer. He's an excellent author. He's an excellent storyteller. And one of the things that, that Tolkien wields in his communication of story is metaphor and simile. He can craft a simile that can touch the heart in an unexpected way. And he does so most often without ever turning toward cliche. Those cliches that you will find in Tolkien's books are usually cliches because he invented them and everyone else started using them. But here, his skill fails him utterly. Look at that second paragraph. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. You know, like that experience that we all share, which is the purpose of a simile. That experience that we all know so well. Hey, I can't remember the last time I knocked on a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, and hey, there's an elf queen inside clad in living flowers. Jeez, if I had a nickel. This is purposeful, though. He isn't just failing in his ability to communicate the impact of Goldberry on the hobbits. Rather, he is deliberately breaking our understanding. He is deliberately challenging our understanding and invoking our most imaginative faculties. He's drawing us upward into the realm of Goldberry. There is nothing in the mortal frame of experience that can be compared to meeting Goldberry for the first time. Here she is apparently enthroned in water. And it's interesting that we 
that we move from her head to her feet, as it were, in terms of our description here. We begin with her hair, her long yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. We're moving down. Her, ground, her gown was green, green as young reeds. So we're moving down. Her belt is of gold. We're moving down. About her feet in white vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating. So we're moving down. We're getting this almost cinematic pan down Goldberry's body. And then she jumps up and she surprises us even then. She is not enthroned in a permanent sense, that was just where she was sitting. This elegance and this harmonious existence is somehow immediately true to Goldberry's nature in exactly the way that it, I was going to say in exactly the way that it is not true to Tom's nature. Let me put it this way. This harmonious coexistence is true to Goldberry in exactly the way that disharmonious coexistence is true to Tom. That I think is, is perhaps a closer reading of this. So what is, what is Goldberry? Well, she certainly doesn't seem to be an elf, particularly when we look at this last paragraph here. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart, marvelous and yet not strange. This suggests to me that Goldberry is not an elf. She is not a part of that realm. Even when we encounter elves in fairly prosaic circumstances, and I'm not even necessarily thinking of meeting Gilder on the road. I'm thinking of, you know, by the time we reach Rivendell, by the time that we have reached Rivendell, if you're thinking of The Hobbit too, by the time that we are, are hanging out in Thranduil's kingdom for weeks at a time, elves are otherworldly. Their existence, even in, the, even in their most mundane moments, is different than that of mortal beings. It's different than the existence of dwarves and elves, uh, dwarves and hobbits and men. Elves are just other. And Goldberry, crucially, is not other. She is much closer to the mortal heart. And I think the mortal heart here is purposeful. It's the mortal heart representing the distinction between all the races of Arda on the one hand and elves on the other, I think is absolutely crucial. That doesn't mean that Goldberry is mortal. It just means that she is capable of communicating with a mortal more directly because she is not of the immortal realm, if that makes sense. Um, yes, Axis Stargazer is asking here in the YouTube chat, is she like a dryad? Well, yes, in part. And that I think is, is part of the ultimate explanation of, of the ultimate explanation. There is no ultimate explanation. My ultimate explanation of what Goldberry is, we'll get to in, in, in just a little bit, yes. Um, but certainly she is representative of some of the virtues embodied in dryads of, of myth and fable. She represents the water. The river daughter, or sometimes the river woman's daughter, or you know variations on that, this does suggest uh, a clear connection between Goldberry and water, certainly the floating lilies and, and Tom gathering the water lilies for her, presumably to replenish the water lilies that are in her bowl, or who knows, maybe she does other things with them. Maybe this is what she eats. We have no idea. But Goldberry's connection with water is clear and vibrant, though there is an interesting kind of twist to that, an interesting snarl of complexity to that when we get to our description of uh, Tom Bombadil in just a few, in just a few uh, slides time. From there, we're going to just move directly in because Frodo is so struck by Goldberry's presence that he begins to recite poetry, or not recite, I guess, but actually write poetry. Oh, slender as a willow wand, oh, clearer than clear water, oh, reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, oh, springtime and summertime and spring again after, oh, wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. 
Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such, a th- saying such things. But Goldberry laughed. Welcome, she said. I had not heard that folk of the Shire were so sweet-tongued, but I see that you are an elf friend. The light in your eyes and the ring in your voice tells it. This is a merry meeting. Sit now and wait for the master of the house. He will not be long. He is tending your tired beasts. O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter. Certainly these first three descriptors, and then I guess the first part of the fourth descriptor there, suggest her beauty. She is slender, she is clear, she is the reed by the living pool, fair river daughter. But then Frodo steps up and away from Goldberry. What are we to make of, O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter? I do like very much that we pivot to sound there in that final line, and I wonder where Frodo would have gone had he continued this song. O springtime and summertime and spring again after. There is within Frodo's response to Goldberry, within Frodo's concept of Goldberry, his his immediate understanding of Goldberry, no time of declination. There is no passing of life. There is the coming of new life, the spring, and then there is the abundance of life, the summer, but there is no autumn and there is certainly no winter. This is a cycle of life upon life upon life, a reed by the living pool. This is perpetual. There is a life here that cannot be constrained by the ordinary cycle of things. Goldberry is something more than that. And that, again, suggests that Goldberry is perhaps not elven, because elves are absolutely respectful of the cycle of of life and and death, that they are are respectful of that cycle of emergence and, and declination at the end, you know? Indeed, the whole story of elves in Middle-earth is one of declination. The whole story of uh, of the elves in Middle-earth is the quiet, slow slipping into forgetfulness. But Goldberry doesn't seem to embody that half of the elven story, that quiet tragedy, that that beautiful tragedy that, that defines the elves and elven culture. Instead, she is something different. She is something other. We'll continue to question what Goldberry is when we have a little more information here from Tom. Um... Maybe Goldberry and Tom, says Pete Marshall, are whatever us the readers hold them to be in a very American gods sort of way. That's interesting. Yes. Oh, now we're getting... um Jackie's invoking the Valar here. Um, Princess Ostrich says, is she some kind of distant child of some actual river, quote, god, as far as gods work in Middle-earth? Yes. And and Jackie says, like Olmo's daughter? Um, There aren't gods in Middle-earth. Those roles are embodied by the Valar, who are immortal spirits who came into Arda. I actually talked about this a little bit in the listener Q&A that I posted last night. Um, Basically, the Ainur are disembodied immortal spirits, which Iluvatar creates prior to creating the world. They are, for want of a better term, angels, okay? So Iluvatar and his countless host of angels are hanging out in the void, singing the Ainulindale before they create the world. Then 14 of these Ainur, 14 of the most powerful Ainur, come down to earth and are themselves not embodied exactly, but are given definition and are associated with particular elements. So we get Aule the smith and we get Yavanna of the trees. And certainly we get a god of the water, a god of the ocean, but it's possible. It's possible that there is some connection here. We're going to, yes, we're going to come back around to that later. Yeah. Um, okay. 
Yes, Simon says, Tom claims to be the oldest thing on Middle Earth there, there before even the others from outside came. All right, let's put a pause here. In fact, let's get to the first part of who the hell is Tom Bombadil um, with Goldberry's response. Fair lady, said Frodo again after a while. Tell me if my asking does not seem foolish. Who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry, staying her swift movements and smiling. Frodo looked at her questioningly. He is as you have seen him, she said in answer to his look. He is the master of wood, water, and hill. Then all this strange land belongs to him? No, indeed, she answered, and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden, she added in a low voice as if to herself. The trees and the grasses and all things growing or living in the land belong each to themselves. Tom Bombadil is the master. No one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. What do we make of this then? Well, this realm is not Tom's dominion exactly. He is not the lord of this realm, but he is the master. And it's difficult to be sure exactly what it is that Goldberry means by that. Tom Bombadil is the master. But then she moves into, no one has ever caught old Tom walking in the forest, wading in the water, leaping on the hilltops under light and shadow. He has no fear. Tom Bombadil is master. She doesn't seem to mean Tom Bombadil is the master of this area. Rather, and the capitalization, the first time that she uses the word master there, is, is or, or the first two times that she uses master there, is more suggestive than that. He is the master of wood, water, and hill. And Frodo immediately says, oh, so all of this belongs to him. We're just camping out in, in Tomland. No, that's not what it is. He is the master in a different way. He does not dominate or own or even it would seem exercise any kind of control over this landscape. He can intervene as he did with Old Man Willow, but this is not his land. Well, then in what sense is he a master? And the immediate idea, I suppose, is that he is not master in a hierarchical sense, in the sense of holding authority, but that he is a master in the craftsman sense that he is very good at what he does. And that is the reason that no one has ever caught him. That is the reason no one has ever caught him walking in the forest or wading in the water or leaping on the hilltops. He's the master. He's the best at what he does. But what does that mean? We should also acknowledge here that there is a, uh, that there is a, uh, a theory about Tom Bombadil that I don't find particularly compelling, but if you read books of... of Tolkien criticism, or in this case, I guess, Tolkien speculation, Tolkien-related speculation. If you go out on the internet, you will see this theory from time to time. Tell me if my asking does not seem foolish, says Frodo. Who is Tom Bombadil? He is, said Goldberry, staying her swift movements and smiling. Some people have interpreted this as proof that Tom is God, that Tom is he who the elves call Iluvatar, that Tom is somehow a higher order of being, that he has come down into the world. He is, is the secret name of God as it is imparted to Moses. Ea is, is, you know, one of the secret names of God. He is, I am that I am. This though doesn't really hold water for me theologically or conceptually. It seems odd to me that Tolkien would draw a monotheistic god, as Iluvatar is, technically speaking, into the world like this. Um, it seems odd that this conclusion, if this was intended, would be so obscure, would be so buried. And it doesn't seem to sit alongside Tom's, 
level of concern for the world, I suppose. If God is inhabiting Arda, then surely all of Arda is God's concern. But Tom doesn't even care about his corner of the old forest. He doesn't even, you know, manage or or police or or even cultivate this corner of the old forest. He's just here. He's not engaged. And that seems to me conceptually, fundamentally incompatible with Tolkien's perception of, of God and goodness, I suppose, within the world. So there are, you know, possible interpretations that suggest that this is the case. Never found that compelling. Never really, you know, been convinced by those arguments. If you have an argument to make that supports this theory, then by all means, make it. You can email me, pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. I'm not entirely closed down to the idea. I would just need to see a new argument that I haven't seen before. And, uh, I'm not sure that there are any out there, but yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Jackie says, no, he can't be Eru. Who's not, he's not referred to in a reverence way in the council of Elrond, but that would presume that in the council of Elrond, they would know that he is Eru. And, and well, we're actually going to talk about the council of Elrond in just a moment. I'm going to break my rule of looking at the book linearly and, and skip ahead to the council of Elrond because we actually get a three beat of who the hell is Tom Bombadil? Because first we ask uh, Goldberry, then we ask Tom himself, and then by the time that we get to the Council of Elrond, he comes up again, and we get a different perspective on who Tom is. And I'm going to include that in this lecture because, honestly, this is our opportunity to talk about Tom. And by the time we get to the Council of Elrond, we are going to have other things to discuss. So don't worry if you haven't read ahead. Don't worry if you don't even know what the Council of Elrond is. We're just going to talk about Tom in the context of, of that discussion and then come right back. But first, before we do that... um. Y yes, yes. As Pete Marshall says here, uh, he is to me means you can't really define him. He just is what he is. All right, let's look at, um, we're first going to discuss uh, Tom's explanation of the rescue, and then we will get to who the hell is Tom Bombadil part two. I kind of wish that I just named this entire session, who the hell is Tom Bombadil? Did you hear me calling, Master? Or was it just chance that brought you at that moment? Tom stirred like a man shaken out of a pleasant dream. And what, said he, did I hear you calling? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me then, if chance you call it. It was no plan of mine, though I was waiting for you. We heard news of you and learned that you were wandering. We guessed you'd come ere long down the water. All paths lead that way down to Withywindle. Old Grey Willow Man, he's a mighty singer. And it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes. But Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder. Tom nodded as if sleep was taking him again. But he went on in a soft singing voice. I had an errand there, gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady, the last day of the year's end to keep them for the, to keep them from the winter, to flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. Each year at summer's end I go to find them for her, in a wide pool deep and clear far down the withy window. There they open first in spring and there they linger latest. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then and her heart was beating. He opened his eyes and looked at them. I'm um, sorry. I just realized that I italicized this line when I, didn't mean to, uh, when I didn't mean to. He opened his eyes and looked at them with a sudden glint of blue. And that proved well for you, for now I shall no longer go down deep again along the forest water, not while the year is old, nor shall I be passing old man Willow's house this side of springtime, not till the merry spring when the river daughter dances down the withy path to bathe in the water. Okay, so let's parse this. Frodo asks outright, did you hear us calling or was it just chance that brought you at that moment? And Tom stirs and says, nope, I didn't hear you. I was busy singing. How could I hear you when I'm singing about my jacket? And hey, have I mentioned that my boots, yellow boots, have you seen these? These are pretty cool. Just chance brought me then, if chance you call it. It was no plan of mine, though I was waiting for you. I had heard that you were coming this way. 
We've heard news of you and learned that you were wondering, he says. We guessed you'd come ere long down to the water. All paths lead that way down to Withy Wendell. Okay. So I had heard, we don't know how, that, he, that you were coming. We, 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 I had heard that you were making your way through the old forest and I was ready for you. But let me tell you, I wasn't looking for you because I had to go and gather some water lilies. I had to go and get them from this one particular pool where they, where they bloom first and linger longest. That's my quest. That was my mission. That was my job. I was bringing water lilies to Goldberry and happened by chance upon you as you were about to be consumed by old man Willow. By that pool long ago, I found the river daughter. Fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then and her heart was beating. What does that mean? Tom, long ago, happens upon this pool where the water lilies bloom, and there he finds Goldberry. Sweet was her singing, and her heart was beating. She was alive. She is, it would seem, alive. She is mortal in some sense, more so than, well, I don't know, more so than, than greater creatures, I suppose. She is alive. She is present, yes. Um, Princess Ulster says she is like Persephone. That's a very good pull. Yes, yes. Oh, and Nathan says song, song, and Tom's laughter could destroy Sauron. Well, we'll talk about that. And Kate says the most attractive feature in a lady, alive. It's it's the top three feature, certainly. Yeah, I think that I think that you're really going to want to look for someone whose heart is beating. Um, yeah, pretty 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 good. And of course, now all I can think about is Laura Moon from American Gods because that's the other text that I'm studying right now. And yes, that's uh, that's. A pretty compelling counter-argument, in fact. Uh, so we know that she was not, uh, you know, resurrected by a magic coin. We know that for sure. This is not an American God story. Her heart was beating. Tom's account here does echo something that he says later. We get this line. Um, Each year at summer's end, I go down to find them for her in a wide pool, deep and clear, far down the withy window. There they open first in spring, and there they linger latest. They are the oldest, if you like, of each new generation of water lilies. These are the oldest and they last the longest. And that is going to be echoed in something that Tom is going to say and in something that will arise at the, uh, at the Council of Elrond too. Yeah. Um, let me see. Yes, yes. So Karen says, so here's the basis of my theory that she was a river creature that made some sort of odd bargain for land marriage. Interesting. So this is kind of pointing toward that, that, uh, that dryad model, that she's some sort of nature spirit. And uh, I tripped up and I said the words nature spirit. In a sense, that is what Tom and Goldberry are. In a sense, they are masculine and feminine nature spirits devoted to earth and to water, respectively. This is certainly the original concept or part of the original concept that led Tolkien to tell stories about them in the first place. They are specifically the kinds of nature spirits that he associated with, with Oxfordshire, that he associated with you know, this idyllic utopian heart of England that we've described before, that they are in a sense, compatible with his depiction of the Shire as this idyllic version of England too. This was part of his original sense of Tom and of Goldberry, but that sits uncomfortably within the frame of the Lord of the Rings because there aren't spirits that we know of. There are other things which will defy characterization. There are other forces, personalities, which we will reach actually before very much longer, which will also potentially sit within that kind of, that kind of tier. But I'm not so sure that, that 
this idea of a nature spirit, i.e. this is just the embodiment of nature, is actually terribly compatible with Tom Bombadil, not least of all because he doesn't take responsibility for the things in his domain, and he is explicitly disharmonious when he is among them. He tramps through the forest and, and makes a lot of noise, and, makes a, and not just the noise of his singing, of course, which the elves would do too, but just makes noise as he passes. It is conscious and deliberate that the comparison is drawn to the big people who, as we know, don't move through the world quietly, either in a literal, a literal or a metaphorical sense. So I don't know that we can say for sure that he that he or Goldberry completely embody this role of nature spirit. I think they may be something else. Let's look at, uh, let's look at Tom's account of who he is as I share this slide with you. Who are you, master? He asked. Hey, what? Said Tom, sitting up and his eyes glinting in the gloom. Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you alone yourself and nameless? But you are young and I am old. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the barrow whites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already. Before the seas were bent, he knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless. Before for the Dark Lord came from outside. A shadow seemed to pass by the window and the hobbits glanced hastily through the panes. When they turned again, Goldberry stood in the door behind, framed in light. She held a candle, shielding its flame from the draft with her hand, and the light flowed through it like sunlight through a white shell. The rain has ended, she said, and new waters are running downhill under the stars. Let us, be now, let us now laugh and be glad. So this is as close as we get to an actual explanation of who Tom is. But first we get something that Gandalf could have said. Don't you know my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me who are you alone yourself and nameless? But you are young and I am old. Well, what is the distinction there? It implies to me that Tom is, that he is, as Goldberry said, Tom is Tom Bombadil. That is actually representative of what he is. His name is not just a label that is applied to him, but has become over the years an actual descriptor of who he is. He is now so old that the only word that can be used to describe him, or the only words that can be used to describe him, are Tom Bombadil. Don't you know my, my name yet? That's the only answer. Tell me, who are you alone yourself and nameless? So if Frodo is by himself and Frodo doesn't have a name, who is he? What is his purpose? What word would you choose to describe Frodo? What words would you choose to describe Frodo? And in what sense would that then be his name? What would be his primary descriptor? But you are young and I am old, says Tom, implying that he has grown into this wisdom, into this awareness. Eldest, that's what I am. Mark my words, my friends. Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He made paths before the big people and saw the little people arriving. He was here before the kings and the graves and the Barrowites. When the elves passed westward, Tom was here already, before the seas were bent. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the Dark Lord came from outside. Tom has been here forever. Tom has pretty much systematically and explicitly put himself in the position of predating every major event in Middle-earth. He has been here for as long as there has been a Middle-earth. Remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He was here before the river and the trees. And we have to ask, well, in what sense was here even here before the river and the trees? But Tom was here. 
So what does that get us? Well, let's take a look at, um, yes, yes, Jackie Beltman says, so Tom was like an accidental stanza in the creation song. Yes, as the uh, Einar were beginning the Einar Lindelay and singing the world into existence, somewhere deep at the back, one of the Einar coughed and it just sounded a bit like, Tom! And that was it. Tom was sung into existence right there, way earlier than he should have been. I, that, I'm into it. That sounds good to me. Fina is saying good night. Good night, Fina. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad that you managed to stick with us as long as you did. But yes, here we are an hour in and we still have a, a long road ahead of us. Um, let me take a look at, um, at the next slide. We're going to jump ahead, in fact, to the Council of Elrond because, as I said, this is our three beats. So we ask Goldberry, we ask Tom himself, and then we get this from the second chapter of the second part of the Fellowship of the Ring. We're going to be covering this in five or six weeks, but I wanted to include it now anyway. Could we not still send messages to him and obtain his help? Asked Aristor. It seemed that he has a power even over the ring. No, I should not put it so, said Gandalf. Say rather that the ring has no power over him. He is his own master. But he cannot alter the ring itself, nor break its power over others. And now he is withdrawn into a little land within bounds that he has set, though none can see them, waiting perhaps for a change of days, and he will not step beyond them. But within these bounds, nothing seems to dismay him, says Ar said Aristor. Would he not take the ring and keep it there forever harmless? No, said Gandalf, not willingly. He might do so if all the free folk of the world begged him, but he would not understand the need. And if he were given the ring, he would soon forget it, or most likely throw it away. Such things have no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. But in any case, said Glorfindel, to send the ring to him would only postpone the day of evil. He is far away. We could not now take it back to him, unguessed, unmarked by any spy. And even if we could, soon or late, the Lord of the Rings would... I'm sorry, I have typed the word slide right here in the middle of the slide, just to let you know that I'm looking at a slide. Soon or late, the Lord of the Rings would learn of its hiding place and would bend all his power toward it. Could that power be defied by Bombadil alone? I think not. I think that in the end, if all else is conquered, Bombadil will fall, last as he was first, and then night will come. I know little of Iowen save the name, said Gather, but Glorfindel, I think, is right. Power to defy our enemy is not in him, unless such power is in the earth itself. So, Tom could take the ring, and could even possibly protect the ring for a little while, but he would forget it. It has no hold on his mind. He would be a most unsafe guardian, and that alone is answer enough. What is most important here, though, is the account of Tom's history. He has retreated to his land. The boundaries are drawn by no one but him, are known by no one but him. But he has, Gandalf says, retreated. Now, Gandalf doesn't know that much about Tom Bombadil. That is clear. But still, he has a sense that Tom's domain, in the sense that Tom has ever had a domain, used to be larger than it currently is. He has retreated to this corner of the old forest. And we must be aware, too, that he is pretty much on the outskirts of the old forest. You, the, the hobbits had to pass pretty much through the entire old forest to get to Tom. But still, he has defined this as his land, though, curiously, he does know about things beyond his land. He, does, he has heard of the coming of, of Frodo, and he knows that the the uh, the host, the the owner of the prancing pony in Bree, is Barnum Butterbur. So he knows about things that are happening right now outside of his own domain, but he is restricted here. He is well. It's difficult. It's difficult to say exactly what he is without using kind of judgmental language. He is is stranded here. He is languishing here. Well, that doesn't seem to be entirely true either. But certainly, he has elected to withdraw to this small part. What I find most interesting is what Galdor says at the end, but Glorfindel, I think, is right. Power to defy our enemy is not in him unless such power is in the earth itself. This is a major um, 
piece of evidence in support of the theory that Tom is some kind of nature spirit, that Tom is somehow tied to the earth. And I guess now we can get into my theory. What is Tom Bombadil? Well, Tom does start as a nature spirit. Tom does start as, as a kind of fairy that embodies the greatest virtues of the bucolic English countryside of Oxfordshire, of Tolkien's use of this vanished golden age that of course, like all golden ages, never really existed, but nonetheless has a powerful hold on the English imagination and on Tolkien's imagination specifically. But when we translate Tom and we translate Goldberry into the frame of the Lord of the Rings, into Middle-earth, we must, I think, come up with a better explanation for them. Because otherwise, they really do challenge our understanding of, of Tolkien's cosmology, of Tolkien's theology, of the creation of the world itself. In what part of the Aina Lindale did Iluvatar sing Tom and Goldberry into existence? Well, I don't think that Tom and Goldberry were sung into, sung into existence by the Aina Lindale. If you've listened to the uh, aforementioned listener Q&A that I posted last night, I think this is the third time in the last hour that I have mentioned this, this short little thing that I, I recorded last night and released. Um, if you listen to that and you heard me gloss the Ainur, you heard me talk about these divine beings which predated the creation of the world. So the Ainur are angelic beings, powerful, immortal, created by Iluvatar and, and existed in a host alongside him. The Valar descend into Middle-earth, as I said, and, and each adopts a certain, a certain quality, a certain set of virtues, a certain power set, a certain association. So we have the, the Valar of the sea and of the smithy and of, of the trees, whatever, whatever, whatever. There are 14 of them. We'll talk about them when we get to the Silmarillion. They are fascinating, by the way, and I do love the stories. But if you want to know more about them, then go listen to that listener Q&A lecture that I recorded last night. But the Valar weren't the only beings to descend into Middle-earth, or to descend, excuse me, not into Middle-earth specifically, but into Arda. The Valar came down, these, these particular Ainur chose to enter the world in order to prepare the world for the coming of the children of Iluvatar, the coming of elves and men. But the Valar were not the only Ainur who came into the world. They were accompanied by Maiar. And Maiar are immortal beings of lesser aspect. They are just, they're, they're of the same order. They are Ainur, just as the Valar are Ainur, but they're a little less powerful. They're not as great as the Valar are. My guess is that Tom and Goldberry, well, certainly Tom, Goldberry's a little different because of the story that Tom tells. I don't quite know what to make of that, but Tom certainly for me is a Maya. He is one of the Maiar. He entered the world at the moment of its creation. He wasn't here before there was no world, but he was here before the trees and the river, and he was here before the acorn and the raindrop. He entered the world voluntarily, pretty much at its moment of creation. But he didn't come in in order to assist the Valar with the, the preparing of the world for the children of Iluvatar. He undertook some different mission. And I am reminded constantly when I'm thinking about this perspective of Tom Bom on Tom Bombadil of Radagast the Brown, who was the wizard who came into the world and basically abandoned his quest and went native. Radagast, along with the other wizards, entered the world in order to fight against Sauron. Uh, in order to fight against Saruman, excuse me. In order to fight against Sauron, but Radagast didn't. The blue wizards just went east and were never seen again, and Radagast just made his home in Middle-earth and hung out with animals all the time. That's what he chose to do. So we know that the Maiar are not necessarily bound by a singular purpose. They have free will. They can choose. We get numerous instances, some of which I will not anticipate and will not spoil here, of the Maiar demonstrating that kind of free will, that kind of fallibility even. 
my reading of this is that Tom is absolutely one of the Maiar. And my reading of Goldberry, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It depends what kind of powers we associate with, with Tom. It is possible that she was an elf. That would indicate the significance of her heart was beating. It's possible even that she was... <sighs> Possible even that she was a man or possible that she was the the offspring of an elf and a, a human. I, I, that may be possible too. We just don't have enough information. But she is representative certainly of, of the dryadic tradition. And that may be the response, uh, maybe a consequence of Tom's influence over her as he embodies with his, his Maiar powers, with his special Maiar skills, that kind of... <sighs> What is the word that I'm looking for? Because it's not protection and it's not guardianship and it's not, it's not cultivation. It's almost embodiment. It's not that Tom is protective of his corner of the world. It is that Tom himself is the embodiment of his corner of the world. And that I think is what uh, Galdor is getting at at the Council of Elrond when he says that the power to resist the ring is not in Tom unless it's in the earth itself. That Tom is the the avatar of his little corner of Middle Earth. Okay, this is a lot of speculation. I think we're going to put a pin in this now and we'll just be done. Pete says, would the ring not tempt Amaya? Well, yes, it would to the degree that we know for sure. Um, we know that Gandalf is tempted by the ring. And Gandalf, as I discussed in the listener Q&A, is of the Maiar. But the crucial difference is that Gandalf was incarnated. Gandalf was given the form of an old man in order to specifically diminish his power. He was made mortal. So I suppose it's truer to say that Gandalf was of the Maiar, that he was he was a Maya traditionally and now is no longer that thing. Now he is mortal. Now he is of the Astari. That's slightly different. And I know I addressed in the listener Q&A... Uh, a problem that some listeners have with this podcast where sometimes I go deep on this stuff and, and lose people who are reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time. If none of this makes sense to you, don't worry about it. Don't fret about it. It's absolutely fine. It is, I think, functionally adequate to stick a little post-it on Tom Bombadil and say, nature spirit. And that's kind of enough. When we're refining our understanding of Tom Bombadil, we're doing so at a pretty high level and with a pretty thorough knowledge of, of the rest of Tolkien's corpus in exactly the same way that it's perfectly fine to slap a little post-it on Gandalf that just says wizard um, and, and not worry about exactly what that means in the context of the Lord of the Rings. But yeah, yeah. Okay, let me see here. Um, as Jackie says, it's fine, it's fine. Just read the Silmarillion. It's fine, it's fine. We're going to do the Silmarillion eventually. Anyway, it's going to be just fine. Don't worry about it. Okay, um... Yes, and as Jackie says, I think the professor's kids just really wanted them in the book, so here we are. Okay, so this takes us back to what Tolkien was saying in his letters, that the reason that he has included Tom and, and Goldberry is not just willful provocation. He's not deliberately doing this to drive some readers crazy. He's including them because they fulfill a purpose that goes otherwise unfulfilled, and that is a representation of a kind, he specifically uses the word pacifist, uh, a representation of a kind of life that is disengaged from any kind of progress, from any kind of culture and society. Tolkien believed and argues this case eloquently throughout the entirety of the Lord of the Rings and certainly throughout the Silmarillion too, that there is an impulse within people, within human beings in the real world, but in the fictional frame, within human beings and elves and dwarves and all the other creatures of Middle-earth. Um, there is an impulse there to form societies, to form communities, to form cultures. But the formation of these things leads inevitably to progress, because in the formation of these things, we, 
advance, whatever that means. And Tolkien was, of course, suspicious of that kind of advancement, suspicious of that kind of progress. So we might argue that Tom and Goldberry are actually the the fullest realization of those qualities which make the Shire as special as they are. We're told way back at the beginning that hobbits are suspicious of technology, that they have no technology more sophisticated than a watermill and a, a bellows for the forge, which are themselves like pretty sophisticated, but neither one of those machines actually takes away the work of a hobbit. They are still tools more than they are machines, if we can draw that very kind of fine distinction there. And that is virtuous within the Shire because that preserves this idyllic community that preserves what makes the Shire special, what makes the Shire important, what makes the Shire valuable. But if we went even further, if we wanted an even more perfect world, a perfect world that was so perfect, it didn't allow for community and society at all, we would end up with Tom Bombadil. We would end up with Goldberry, which is possibly why they are here on the fringes of the Shire. They are close but distinct in a way that isn't <laughs> in a way that isn't not reminiscent of the Bucklanders as we discussed last week the Bucklanders seal themselves off from the Shire by crossing the river but also seal themselves off from the forest by building the hedge so there are you know different qualities of belonging which are evident here and certainly Tom is distinct from the Shire but we know that he hangs out with Farmer Maggot we know that he's that he's having a good time just chatting with hobbits we know that he is receptive to the idea of Frodo coming into his neighborhood and hanging out he's not um he's not unwelcoming he's not inhospitable to these hobbit guests indeed he seems prepared for guests and Goldberry too seems very hospitable so his exact position in the world, we may take to be the fullest realization of Tolkien's principles of virtue, that here he is completely pacifist, he is completely disengaged from the concerns of the larger world, he is completely present in his own experience and in his own realm, in a way that is like that of the elves, but taken even further. Because even the Tralalalali elves know about the quest of the Lonely Mountain, care to some degree about the quest of the Lonely Mountain, they, they you know, help the dwarves. And Tom kind of does, but he's willing to, to save them when they need saving and no more than that. Okay, we really must push on here because we have to get to the showing of the ring, which I guess is significant. Um, let me see. Are we having video trouble? Do we seem to have video trouble? No, it looks okay right now. All right, that's good. I'm very glad to hear it. All right, this is our next slide. Show me the precious ring. Excuse me, this is Tom's voice. Show me the precious ring, he said suddenly in the midst of the story. And Frodo, to his own astonishment, drew out on the chain from his pocket and unfastening the ring, handed it at once to Tom. It seemed to grow larger as it lay for a moment on his big brown-skinned hand. Then suddenly he put it to his eye and laughed. For a moment, the hobbits had a vision, both comical and alarming, of his bright blue eye gleaming through a circle of gold. Then Tom put the ring round the end of his little finger and held it up to the candlelight. For a moment, the hobbits noticed nothing strange about this. Then they gasped. There was no sign of Tom disappearing. Tom laughed again. Then he spun the ring in the air and it vanished with a flash. Frodo gave a cry and Tom leaned forward and handed it back to him with a smile. Frodo looked at it closely and rather suspiciously, like one who was lent a trinket to a juggler. It was the same ring or looked the same, and weighed the same, for that ring had always seemed to Frodo to weigh strangely heavy in the hand, but something prompted him to make sure. He was perhaps a trifle annoyed with Tom for seeming to make so light of what even Gandalf thought so perilously important. He waited for an opportunity when the talk was going again and Tom was telling an absurd story about badgers and their queer ways. Then he slipped the ring on. Mary turned toward him to say something and gave a start and checked an exclamation. Frodo was delighted in a way. It was his own ring, all right, for Mary was staring blankly at his chair and obviously could not see him. 
He got up and crept quietly away from the fireside toward the outer door. Again, as Jackie says, with the word precious. Yes. Um, this is interesting. Tom didn't go invisible, as Angela's crying out here in the YouTube chat with two exclamation points. Tom didn't go invisible. The ring has no power over him. It's curious that, uh, first of all, a little minor observation here, because this is one of the things that... Uh, one of the things that distinguishes the novel of the Lord of the Rings from the movie adaptation of the Lord of the Rings, it is very tempting every time someone slips on the ring in the book of the Lord of the Rings or even in the Hobbit to imagine that desaturated, rushy, otherworldly, ethereal realm, which Peter Jackson uses to indicate the wearing of the ring. It is clear from this passage that no such effect exists within the pages of the Lord of the Rings because Frodo doesn't even know that he's invisible while wearing the ring until Mary turns to look at him. There is clearly no physical effect associated with the wearing of the ring and the invisibility that flows forth from that. This is fascinating. Jackie here in the YouTube chat is anticipating exactly the point I was going to make. So if Tom's completely a pacifist, then the ring has no influence over him. Yes, the rings are intended to corrupt. The rings are intended to, to seduce and to transform. And even the drawing into the wraith world that is associated with the great rings, even that is supposed to empower and thus corrupt because power and corruption within the frame of Tolkien's work are always connected. These two things are inextricably linked, at least inextricably linked within the hearts of mortal men. Tom has no seed of corruption within him. Tom arguably has no seed of power within him. Tom's power seems to be the power of song and of knowledge, but he doesn't, as Goldberry says, use it to dominate. Tom has no interest in conquest. He is pacifistic in a kind of abstract sense. He is, he is pacifistic to the point of not wanting to intrude upon the world at all with his desire. He moves through it and takes joy from it, but doesn't seek to dominate in any way. Now we can talk, I think, philosophically about the ultimate extent of that, but if we take that as a given, if we say that, yes, Tom is a pacifist, and that is why the ring has no effect, then it is, I think, completely compatible with our understanding of the ring's ultimate purpose. It exists to corrupt and we know, too, that he isn't susceptible to the effect of the ring, because when Frodo puts the ring on and starts moving toward the door, Tom calls out to him and says, hey, don't do that. Don't play tricks. Don't wear your magic ring. Come sit down. I'm telling a cool story about badgers. Frodo, what, were you raised in a barn? Tom can see through the effect of the ring as well as being impervious to its actual, you know, worn effect. Um, Nathan says, when I first read this part as a kid, I was a little paranoid that Tom might be a darker character than he seemed, and he was going to give an evil laugh once he had the ring. Possibly. Yes, that's good. That's good. We might even speculate here about, about the degree to which Tom is... <laughs> the degree to which Tom is removed even from the proximal effect of the ring. We know that the ring will whisper seductive truths to people or, or will present those truths as seductive. We know that the ring will engage in its own little internal monologue with, with whoever is wielding it and sometimes people who aren't even wielding it. But Tom gets Frodo to hand over the ring in a way that Frodo didn't even hand over the ring to Gandalf or Bilbo didn't even hand over the ring to Gandalf. Frodo is apparently trusting, and it seems as though Tom can cut through the ring's effect, even in the minds of others, which would suggest that 
all of the ring's many qualities and abilities, all of the things with uh, all of the things with which we associate the ring, are anchored in its corruptive nature, its corruptive essence, if you like. And Tom can cut through that too, which is yeah, very very powerful. But of course, being a pacifist, he can't engage with the ring in a meaningful way. He can hold it as a trinket. He can make it disappear. He's not susceptible to its effects, but he can't hold it. He can't bear it. He can't claim it because even the claiming of something completely mundane, you know, something that isn't freely given, any kind of, of, of claim of ownership is in the most general sense, I suppose, in the most, most subtle and social of senses, any claim of ownership is an act of violence because any claim of ownership is a denial of the right of others. To claim the ring, Tom would have to say, this ring is mine and therefore not anyone else's. And that does seem to run contrary to our understanding of, of who and what Tom is. Though we'll be able to look at that a little differently by the time we get to the Barrows to which, hey, you guys, um, yeah, let's just keep pushing on. Why not, right? We only have six slides to cover as we're moving through the Barrows, so we can probably do that. You guys don't mind hanging around an extra half an hour today, do you? I'm sure we can <laughs> just do a long episode and, and maintain our pace here. It's all going to be fine. Um, Badgers in Narnia, best badgers, says Becca Eller. Yes, badgers hate being badgered, says Gildarus Winter, which is very, very true. And of course, all the Hufflepuffs in the audience are high-fiving. Seems completely appropriate. Yes, good. Okay, so from there, we move away from Tom's cottage. And of course, I am missing so many incidental parts of, of Tom's chapter here. It is, it is one of those chapters... Uh, which we could spend three weeks covering. Honestly, we could just do a line by line reading of the entire chapter. We can't do that. So I've selected these highlights and now we must push on and get away from, uh, get away from uh, um, Tom. Um, Yes, yes. Uh, Karen says this, to accomplish the destruction of the ring, we need someone at least a bit susceptible or more, but spoilers. Yes, we shall not talk about the destruction of the ring. Yes. Um, Nathan says, it seems the ring is all about destruction and control. Tom is about creation and growth, not dominion. Yes. And Jackie says, sounds like Northern California hippies to me. Hey, Jackie, we need to come visit and hang out in Northern California. That's definitely a thing that we have to do. All right. Yes, total hippies, says Nathan. Nathan, I think you're on the same page. Here we go. Let's move in to our next chapter and mist, uh, fog on the Baradans, excuse me, chapter eight of the Fellowship of the Ring. They took a deep draft of the air and felt that a skip and a few strides would bear them wherever they wished. It seemed faint-hearted to go jogging aside over the crumpled skirts of the downs toward the road when they should be leaping as lusty as Tom over the stepping stones of the hills straight towards the mountains. Goldberry spoke to them and recalled their eyes and thoughts. Speed now, fair guests, she said, and hold to your purpose. North with the wind in the left eye and a blessing on your footsteps. Make haste while the sun shines. And to Frodo, she said, farewell, Elfriend. It was a merry meeting. But Frodo found no words to answer. He bowed low and mounted his pony, and followed by his friends, joked slowly down the gentle slope behind the hill. Tom Bombadil's house and the valley and the forest were lost to view. The air grew warmer between the green walls of hillside and hillside, and the scent of turf rose strong and sweet as they breathed. Turning back, when they reached the bottom of the green hollow, they saw Goldberry, now small and slender like a sunlit flower against the sky. She was standing still, watching them, and her hands were stretched out towards them. As they looked, she gave a clear call, and lifting up her hand, she turned and vanished behind the hill. And so Goldberry passes out of our narrative. This is a beautiful sequence particularly because it provides a functional bookend to this chapter. We are about to become mired in the fog of the Barrow Dance. We are about to, 
again, leave behind the natural world in a stark and, in this case, physical way. We're about to be threatened again, but we begin and end very much connected to the natural world. And in effect, this gives us an insight to Tom's power and Tom's capability and to the degree that Tom has a dominion, to Tom's dominion too. This is what Tom is. Move forward under the sunlight with the ground beneath your feet, with the smell of the turf in your nostrils. Move forward as a part of the world. Now, the hobbits are swayed by Tom. They are inspired by Tom. They don't want to take the more cautious route of skirting the Barrow Downs. Rather, they want to leap from hilltop to hilltop, just like Tom. But they are not Tom. They are not freed from the burden of of the world. They are not allowed to be separate. They are still a part of, of their own existence, their own experience, and their own process here. Uh, Jackie says, Frodo being all struck by beautiful women is my favorite. Yes, this is not the last time that this will happen. It is my favorite example of that. I just love Goldberry, you guys, and Frodo is absolutely on it. As Kate says, yeah, Jackie Boatman, he and Gimli both. It's pretty great. Good. Yes, and Princess Ostrich too. Throwing ahead to Galadriel, we will definitely talk a great deal about Galadriel when we get to her in about, gosh, what? Two months, three months, something like that. It's going to be just fine. Yes. Frodo's admiration of beautiful women, says Becca Eller, is a running theme, but it's a completely appropriate theme, I think. <laughs> so here we begin this chapter, this chapter that will all but permanently remove the hobbits from the natural world with the restoration of their, their faith and fortune, with the restoration of their connection to the world around them. They are leaving Tom Bombadil with a gift, and that gift is a direct connection to their own experience. They are as much now a part of the world as they have ever been and arguably will ever be. This is the, the hobbits in their natural state. And we must remember, of course, that they are now beyond the Shire. They are connected to the natural world, but it is not there world. Here they are borrowing some of Tom's, what is the word? Presence, I suppose. Tom's, Tom's ability to be connected to his environment. I think, yeah, presence is probably about as good as that word gets. They are immediate and they are present just as Tom Bombadil is immediate and present. And we'll arc back to this at the end of the chapter. Um, from there, though, they find themselves lost. From there, though, they wander into the barrows they eat, they rest, they take a pretty traditionally hobbity approach to journeying toward Bree, but here they get waylaid by the fog and, and the cold mist descends upon them. They lose their way, they lose each other, and then ultimately we get to their actual capture. Where are you? He cried again, both angry and afraid. Here, said a voice deep and cold that seemed to come out of the ground. I am waiting for you. No, said Frodo, but he did not run away. His knees gave and he fell to the ground. Nothing happened, and there was no sound. Trembling, he looked up in time to see a tall, dark figure like a shadow against the stars. It leaned over him. He thought there were two eyes, very cold, though lit with a pale light that seemed to come from some remote distance. Then a grip stronger and colder than iron seized him. The icy touch froze his bones, and he remembered no more. When he came to himself again, for a moment he could recall nothing except a sense of dread. Then suddenly he knew he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. He was in a barrow. A barrow white had taken him, and he was probably already under the dreadful spells of the barrow whites about which whispered tales spoke. He dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon a cold stone with his hands on his breast. 
But though his fear was so great that it seemed to be part of the very darkness that was round him, he found himself as he lay thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, as they're jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire and talking about roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply, it is true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid. Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, and a terrible end. But the thought hardened him. He found himself stiffening as if for a final spring. He no longer felt limp like a helpless prey. We must be reminded, of course, of a similar experience that Bilbo, uh, Bilbo had in the pages of The Hobbit. This is not dissimilar to Bilbo waking in Mirkwood, wrapped in spiderweb. This is, this is the moment which will define Frodo's heroism from this point forward. This is the seed of courage, hidden often deeply, it is true, in the heart of the fantasy and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo's seed of courage is growing. And we must bear this in mind as we move forward, because uh, two weeks from now, yes, two weeks from now, we will get a moment of very great courage from Frodo. And there is, I think, Sometimes a criticism of that scene, which I won't even, I will say, I will say Weathertop. For those of you who are familiar with the book, that will be enough. Um, there is sometimes a criticism of Weathertop that Frodo's sudden courage comes from nowhere. But that is a criticism made by people who have skimmed the Barrow White chapter. Because this is the moment at which Frodo becomes greater. This is the moment at which Frodo's courage actually begins to, to grow. This is the moment at which he becomes as Bilbo became when facing the spiders of Mirkwood. This arc toward heroism does seem to be possible for all hobbits. And certainly, though the narrator will not remind us of this metaphor at that point, we can, I think, to some extent, track the moments at which the seeds of courage sprout for all three of uh, the other three hobbits in our party too. So we'll keep an eye on that as we move forward. Yeah, Angela says, uh, I ended up reading this part several times for it to sink in, and I don't know why. Something abstract about it. Well, we do get this sharp cut right here in the middle, and we are certainly supposed to be supposed to be pulled. Oh, this is good from Karen. Uh, I love that we have almost a eulogy for Frodo as, as he's being sucked into the realm of the dead. That's very good. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. That's wonderful. I mean, the narrator gives us this. Frodo is not aware. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid. Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. That's really interesting that, yes, we, as Frodo is laid out in the pose of death, we are given something approaching a eulogy for him. Karen, that is a great catch. I hadn't ever thought of that in quite those terms before. That's, that's very, very good. And as Jackie says, the best hobbit in the Shire, high praise. Yes, simply the best hobbit. Frodo is not always an easy hobbit to love. He's not always, I think, I think Frodo is rarely the favorite hobbit of any reader. I think generally we identify with Sam and we enjoy Merry and Pippin more than we enjoy Frodo. But Frodo is quietly heroic. And I do think that it's important as we remember that. Yes. And who comes into the story before Weathertop, says Jackie Boatman. Well, hey, stick around next time to find out who's going to join our adventuring party. In fact, you'll see it on the last slide of the session because the chapter's named for him and that will be just fine. Um, so what we have here, what is happening here, first of all, what are these barrows? 
if you listened to that listener Q&A, you will have heard me refer to the kingdom of Arnor, which is basically the kingdom of men which occupied this entire part of Middle-earth ages ago. There was a war between Arnor and Angmar, the, the forces of Angmar led by the Witch King of, of Angmar, um, and, and Arnor fell. These barrows are actually ancient. They predate the earliest days of Arnor. But when Merry awakes shortly, he is going to have a memory of the coming forces of the Witch King. We are going to get a memory of the final war, the final battle that destroyed, uh, that destroyed Arnor. The barrows here are corrupted themselves. The Witch King corrupted these barrows because they were places for the hallowed dead, and now they are places of restless dead. Now they are rapacious. Now they are seeking to consume. And the nature of that consumption is fascinating. When Frodo is taken, he is laid out on a slab, his hands crossed upon his chest in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, which we can presume, I suppose, is the tradition of those men who fought for Arnor too. They are integrated, as we know from, from Mary's dream slash vision slash memory, they are being drawn into not just a generic realm of the dead, but this specific realm of these specific dead. They are being pulled into the cold memory of what happened to these, these valiant warriors. Um, and that is, that is a, a typically Tolkienian kind of magic. It is the magic of stories and storytelling. It is not a force of arms. They are lured here first by the fog and by disorientation. They are separated. Their fears are played with, and then they are captured. They are taken. They are laid out, ready for death. This is so much more than just an assault by the Black Riders, for example, with whom, of course, the Barrowites share some similarity and actually share, you know, th there is some connective tissue between the Barrowites because the Witch King of Angmar was of the Nazgul and, and his fell influence is present in the Whites themselves. This is why the Barrows are, are corrupted in this way. But it also tells us, well, let's get ahead to Tom's rescue, actually, before we, uh, before we do this. And we get before Tom a brief mention of the ring. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned to stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring, whether the Barrowite would miss him and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Merry and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do, but the courage that had been awakened in him was now too strong. He could not leave his friends so easily. He wavered, groping in his pocket, but then fought with, and then fought with himself again. And as he did so, the arm crept nearer. Sudden resolve hardened in him, and he seized a short sword that lay beside him, and kneeling, he stooped low over the bodies of his companions. With what strength he had, he hewed at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off, but at the same moment the sword splintered up to the hilt. There was a shriek, and the light vanished. In the dark, there was a snarling noise. Frodo fell forward over Mary, and Mary's face felt cold. All at once, back into his mind, from which it had disappeared with the first coming of the fog, came the memory of the house down under the hill and of Tom singing. He remembered the rhyme that Tom had taught them. In a small, desperate voice, he began, Ho, Tom Bombadil! And with that name, his voice seemed to grow strong. It had a full and lively sound, and the dark chamber echoed as if to drum and trumpet. Ho, Tom Bombadil! Tom Bombadillo! By water, wood, and hill! By the reed and willow! By fire, sun, and moon! Hearken now and hear us! Come, Tom Bombadil! For our need is near us! Firstly, the influence of the ring is as treacherous and as deceptive as ever. 
we get at the end of this first paragraph exactly the kind of rationalization that we have come to associate with the ring. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Mary and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. It's fine, says the ring. Put me on. Get out of here. Who cares about these hobbits? No one will blame you. It'll be fine. You can't do anything to save them, but you can save yourself. This is the seductive voice of the ring, and we know that it's the seductive voice of the ring because of the rationalization that accompanies it. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. This is exactly like the rationalization that, that occurs to Frodo when he is tempted to put on the ring when confronted with the Black Rider. He was still in the Shire. It was going to be... Bilbo used the ring lots of times. Everything is fine. Just put on the ring and you'll be okay. Now, we might question whether or not he would be okay, and we might question the purpose of the ring at this moment, whether or not the ring has, you know, uh, an explicit purpose. I'm not sure what would have happened if Frodo had put on the ring. We will certainly get the sense later that he would have been, if anything, more vulnerable to the Barrow Whites, but I'm not sure. Perhaps the ring wants to be taken up by one of the Barrow Whites, if such a thing is even possible. Who knows? But in any case, the ring wants to be worn. But his courage now is too strong. He could not leave his friends so easily. So here, it is Frodo's courage, Frodo's principle, that stands in opposition to the, the influence of the ring. And that is perhaps surprising. That confirms to us the degree to which Frodo is now courageous. We might not have expected this of young Mr. Baggins, but here it is. Even faced with the temptation of the ring, a temptation to which he has all but succumbed before. Remember, when, he, when facing the Black Rider by the road, he was going to put the ring on. It was only the good fortune that caused the Black Rider to move on that prevented him from putting it on immediately. Here, there is nothing stopping him from putting it on and everything urging him to put it on, and he doesn't. This is who Frodo is. Then, as he falls over Mary, Mary's face feels cold, and all at once, the memory returns. And as the narrator tells us here, the memory, uh, the memory of Tom's rhyme had disappeared with the first coming of the fog. In case we weren't sure whether this fog was a natural phenomenon, just, just bad luck, if bad luck you call it, I suppose, or if it had been somehow a part of the spell, a part of, of the, the influence of the Barrows and of the Barrow Whites, this resolves that perfectly. It seems to be part of the influence of the Barrows. This is not a natural fog. This is a supernatural fog, which we will see pretty clearly in a few minutes when Tom all but dispels it. Good. Good. All right. Um, <laughs> God, I love snarling, says Kate. This is so creepy, says Jackie. Yes, it's very, very good. Um, yes, excellent. All right. So Frodo sings the song and summons Tom, who charges into the rescue. He sings his song. He banishes the, the Barrow White. He, he brings light and life with him, as well as bringing song, though there is a degree to which those things are interchangeable. And then out on the grass, we get the restoration. What in the name of wonder, began Mary, feeling the golden circlet that had slipped over one eye. Then he stopped and a shadow came over his face and he closed his eyes. Of course, I remember, he said. The man of Karndum came on us at night and we were worsted. Ah, the spear in my heart! He clutched at his breast. No, no, he said, opening his eyes. What am I saying? I've been dreaming. Where did you get to, Frodo? I thought I was lost, said Frodo, but I don't want to speak of it. Let us think of what we are to do now. Let us go on. Dressed up like this, sir, said Sam. Where are my clothes? He flung his circlet, belt, and rings on the grass and looked around helplessly as if he expected to find his cloak, jacket, and breeches, and other hobbit garments lying somewhere to hand. You won't find your clothes again, said Tom, bounding down from the mound and laughing as he danced around them in the sunlight. 
one would have thought that nothing dangerous or dreadful had happened, and indeed the horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him and saw the merry glint in his eyes. What do you mean? asked Pippin, looking at him, half puzzled and half amused. Why not? But Tom shook his head, saying, You found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. The restoration of sunlight and life and immediacy of presence, thanks to Tom, is the perfect antidote to the abstraction of the Barrowites. They are, the hobbits, are all but pulled out of the natural world. They are all but pulled into the realm of the dead. Metaphorically, of course, there isn't actually a realm of the dead in that sense contained within the barrows, but they are pulled out of the world. They are pulled away from life and laughter and fellowship. And Tom has the perfect antidote. Some singing, some dancing, run around naked on the grass under the sun. You'll be just fine. This is the functional restoration of their identities, the functional restoration of themselves. And I'm reminded of Bilbo's arrival with the elves back in the pages of The Hobbit, where exhausted and starving, they finally get to the elves and the elves say, this is great, you're here. Want to sing with us all night? That'll restore you. And in a sense, it would. Bilbo himself is even tempted here, the restoration of immediacy and a physical connection with the world, of running around the on the grass under the sun, this is exactly what the hobbits need to cast off the chill shadow of the Barrowites. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning, says Jackie, is my favorite Tom line. It is a pretty good, a pretty good Tom line. Oh, and this is good. Uh, Trig of Ireland says Tolkien is underappreciated as a writer of horror. Yes, yes. Princess Ostrich says, why did the Barrow Whites play dress up? Because they wanted to draw the hobbits into their kind of uh, charade of death. They wanted to lay the hobbits out as they themselves were laid out. This is the seduction of the Barrowites, is the, the replication of their own fate. They wanted, this is why Frodo was laid out with his hands crossed upon his chest. This is why they're dressed up in funereal gear and attire, is because they are being drawn into a replication of those same events. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, I'm scrolling back to make sure I didn't miss anything in the YouTube chat. No, I think we're pretty good. Princess Ostrich asks, is there any worse purgatory for an evil ring with an agenda than traveling with hobbits? Yeah, I can't imagine that's particularly good. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. All right. Um, so Tom here, of course, yes. Tom's mere presence seeming to counteract the chill after effect of the barrow. And then his advice, be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. I'm going back into the barrow because there is stuff here that I need to do. But you guys just run around. Everything's going to be fine. So Tom does, in fact, go back into the barrow. While they were eating, Tom went up to the mound and looked through the treasures. Most of these he made into a pile that glistered and sparkled on the grass. He bade them lie there, free to all finders, birds, beasts, elves, or men, and all kindly creatures. For so the smell of the mound should be broken and scattered, and no white ever come back to it. He chose for himself from a pile of... He chose from himself... Excuse me. He chose for himself from the pile a brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies... He looked long at it as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head and saying at last, Here is a pretty toy for Tom and for his lady. Fair was she who long ago wore this on her shoulder. Goldberry shall wear it now, and we will not forget her. 
For each of the hobbits, he chose a dagger, long, leaf-shaped, and keen, of marvelous worksmanship, damasked with serpent forms in red and gold. They gleamed as he drew them from their black sheaths, wrought of some strange metal, light and strong and set with many fiery stones. Whether by some virtue in these sheaths or because of the spell that lay on the mound, the blade seemed untouched by time, unrusted, sharp, glittering in the sun. Old knives are long... Old knives are long enough for swords for hobbit people, he said. Sharp blades are good to have if shire folk go walking, east, south, or far away, into dark and danger. Then he told them that these blades were forged many long years ago by the men of Westerness. They were foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of, Car of Carndoom in the land of Angmar. Few now remember them, Tom murmured. Yet still, go yet still some go wandering, sons of forgotten kings walking in loneliness, guarding from evil things folk that are heedless. Uh, we have a few questions here in the YouTube chat. Kelly and Jackie are both wondering, wait, what? Who used to wear that thing? We don't know. There is no account. There is nothing buried in the Silmarillion. There is nothing buried in some notebook or scrap of paper that has been compiled by Christopher Tolkien that tells us who this artifact belonged to or how she wore it or, or why she wore it or what it represents. We don't know what memory Tom is having here. This is part of Tolkien's great ability as a storyteller is his ability to suggest the illusion of depth, the illusion of breadth. We don't know and we don't need to know. Tom remembers. And most importantly, perhaps, Tom values that memory. Here he is taking a thing, and, and this, of course, might stand in opposition to what I said earlier about Tom taking possession of something. Here he is taking this thing in order to remember the past. It is an act of service to take this trinket back to Goldberry. He is not sacking the barrow. He is not looting the dead here. He is laying out everything in the sunlight, free to all who want to take it. And he is taking this one piece so that he can remember. This is the undertaking of an act of service by Tom and by Goldberry, and really quite beautiful. Jackie says, a queen of Arnor? Yeah, probably, but... I don't know who, I don't know what specific memory he's referring to there. Can I just pretend? Jackie asks, yes, you definitely can. You can make up any story you like about the dead queen of Arnor who wore this uh, brooch set with blue stones, many shaded like flax flowers or the wings of blue butterflies. It's really quite beautiful. And I find that, I find that moment of reflection from Tom, wherein he is still, he looked long at it as if stirred by some memory, shaking his head and saying at last, here is a pretty toy for Tom and for his lady. This is just a moment of stillness and contemplation from Tom. And it moves me every time that I read it. Yeah, good. So we get here to a little recitation of the history of the area. The men of Westerness, they were the foes of the Dark Lord. They were overcome by the evil king of Karndum in the land of Angmar. This is the kingdom of Arnor that he's describing here. And now, blades crafted by the men of Westerness. Blades intended to combat and to defeat the servants of the Dark Lord in the first place. Here we get not quite, you know, magic swords, but it would be fair to say, I think, enchanted swords. Yeah. Yes, good. Mitch says this bit always reminded me of the dwarves and trolls of uh, the dwarfs and the trolls horde in the Hobbit, but th that was a bit more looting-ish. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. We will note that unlike the dwarves who took the swords from that, that troll horde, the hobbits don't take the swords. Tom takes the swords and gives them to the hobbits. So there is still, I mean, that may seem like, like a bit of fine distinction, but I do think that that is important and valuable. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, we really must push on to our final slide here. 
Tom will give you good advice till this day is over. After that, your own luck must go with you and to guide you. Four miles along the road, you'll come upon a village, Bree under Bree Hill, with doors looking westward. There you'll find an old inn that is called the Prancing Pony. Barlamon Butterbur is the worthy keeper. There you can stay the night, and afterwards the morning will speed you upon your way. Be bold, but wary. Keep up your merry hearts and ride to meet your fortune. They begged him to come at least as far as the inn and drink once more with them, but he laughed and refused, saying, Tom's country ends here. He will not pass the borders. Tom has his house to mind, and Goldberry is waiting. Then he turned, tossed up his hat, leaped on Lumpkin's back, and rode up over the bank and away, singing into the dusk. The hobbits climbed up and watched him until he was out of sight. I'm sorry to take leave of Master Bombadil, said Sam. He's a caution and no mistake. I reckon we may go a good deal further and see not better nor queerer. But I won't deny I'll be glad to see the prancing pony you spoke of. I hope it'll be like the green dragon away back home. What sort of folk are there in Bree? There are hobbits in Bree, said Mary, as well as big folk. I dare say it will be home-like enough. The pony is a good inn by all accounts. My people ride out here, ride out there now and again. And so we are returned from the supernatural to the excessively natural. And there are, I think, few things in the world more natural than a pub. We've crossed the river. We have been hunted by dark riders. We had, I guess, our last moment of comfort would have been at Crick Hollow, if not in the company of Farmer Maggot. So we've had moments of respite, and certainly our time in Tom Bombadil's home was comfortable enough, but still supernatural. We have now crossed the old forest, and with our moment of respite at Tom's, we have now crossed the, the, Barrow, uh, the, the Barrow Downs too, but now we are about to return to the road. We're about to return to civilization. Frodo's journey east is much more complicated than, Bilbo, uh, than Bilbo's journey east in The Hobbit. It is much more detailed. It is much more nuanced. It is much more complicated. But it does still track a similar pattern. We return to civilization now for the next little part of our journey. And that is what we will discuss next week. Um, that, I think, will do it. I, I really must wrap up. We've, we've run 15 minutes over time, and I can't believe we've made it to the end of the chapter, which is just great. Let me put up this final slide here, because our next session is The Fellowship of the Ring, Chapter 9 and Chapter 10, at the Sign of the Prancing Pony and Strider, Chapter 10 of The Lord of the Rings. That is at 9 p.m. Eastern. We're back to our evening slot next week. 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, June the 29th, 2017. I hope that you will be able to join me for that. Uh, that will be a really interesting discussion. Certainly the transition that we get back to civilization, a kind of civilization that we recognize in Brie, and the introduction of one of the most propulsive forces in the entire story. We are going to meet arguably the most significant character that we haven't already met in the pages of The Lord of the Rings next week, and that is going to be a big, big deal. It also marks a really fascinating tonal change. The the tonal, the, the almost... Um, textural shift that we get as we move into Brie is profound. And we were talking this time about Tolkien being a master of, of horror. We're going to get a lot of that in next week's chapters. And then it is a heedless dash toward the end of book one. So next time, chapters nine and 10, the week after that, we're going to do chapter 11. The week after that, we'll do chapter 12. And that will close out the first book of the Fellowship of the Ring. At that point, we will be a sixth of the way through the Lord of the Rings. I think as of right now with the delays, we're supposed to end in August of next year. So we're still more than a year out from the end of this run. And then the Cimmerillion too, probably. We've got a lot to discuss. That will do it. Um, 
Great. Nine is easier for me too, says Kate Scott. Yeah, I, I like having the evening sessions too. As I say, I like mixing it up a little bit, but evening sessions work well for pretty much everyone. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you all so much for your support. If you would like to help me make more of these things that I make over at Point North Media, patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. And if you are already a supporter, then by all means, tell a friend. By all means, recommend the podcast to someone. By all means, head on over to iTunes and leave a review or just tweet a link, post it up on your Facebook page, do whatever you want to do. Burn this episode to a CD and give it to a friend well maybe not this episode this probably shouldn't be the first episode of there and back again that you listen to but go all the way back to episode one and burn that to a cd and give it to a friend why not guys thank you so much for listening thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your support and your company i will talk to you all again next week until then take care